I, uh, I told him earlier that you always know how much kids have practiced, not by how much or how well the kids do, but by how many of the words the parents know. And uh, I certainly uh, felt like uh, Megan and I knew most of those words pretty well today. So uh, what a blessing uh, to have the kids come and to usher us into this uh, Palm Sunday and into this Holy Week. And it is good to be here with you this morning as we continue uh, in our series of Dig ZPC. And today we are um, talking and listening and thinking through a little bit more about what it means for us to worship. And so this morning we are going to look at the, uh, one of the, of course, kind of classic Palm Sunday text, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 19, verses 28 through 40. And so I uh, invite you and encourage you to hear these words. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he had come near Bethpage and Bethany at the place called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find tied there a colt that has never been ridden. Untie it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? Just say this, The Lord needs it. Those who were sent departed and found it as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, Why are you untying the colt? They said, The Lord needs it. Then they brought it to Jesus, and after throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, people kept spreading their cloaks on the road. As he was now approaching the path down from the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the deeds of power that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, order your disciples to stop. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the stones would shout out. Sisters and brothers in Christ, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. God, I pray that on this Palm Sunday, that you would help us to be led in by the children. To understand what it means to worship you and you alone what it means to come as a child and to trust in God. And we pray, O Lord, that the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen and amen. So a few years back now, I was uh, in the Atlanta airport and I, uh, I've, I always love going to the Atlanta airport because I always know that there are at least a couple of Chick-fil-A's that are always someplace near a gate that I need. And so I, I'm always kind of have a craving for Chick-fil-A. And so I, I go and get ready to order my, my Chick-fil-A sandwich and my, my waffle fries and my lemonade. Amen? 
And, and so there I was, I was standing in line, I, I was getting very excited, I could smell the food, I, I was there, there was just a couple of people in front of me, and I, I, kept, I kept hearing somebody behind me, that, and I thought, man, this person's voice sounds somewhat familiar. And so I, I did what I, I call my kind of, my sneaky chin move, to see if I know the person behind me. Now, Megan thinks that this is not very smooth, but I think it is. And so, uh, so I just kind of do this chin, do you guys do this, just kind of scratch your chin, kind of look back? No? Okay, well, you should try it. So, um... <laughs> So I did that, and sure enough, it was the heavyweight boxing champion of the world, Evander Holofield, who was standing right behind me. And I thought, could it be? I mean, is this really Evander Holyfield standing in a line waiting for a, a Chick-fil-A sandwich? And so I, you know, I did a couple more of the chin moves and, and sure enough it was. And I didn't know what to do. I felt like I should do something. I didn't know whether to give him a little, hey, you know, and uh, I thought wiser of that. And so, uh, but I thought, wait. And, and, and after, after I was gone, I kept thinking, what just happened? It was, it was like this weird kind of out-of-body experience. And like, was it, was it really Evander Holyfield? Did that just happen? And, and just a few years before that, I was, uh, I was making good use of my, of my college degree. So I was waiting tables. And I was, I, I was in the bustling metropolis of Cleveland, um, Tennessee. And, 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 and I was waiting tables at, at a fine dining place called Shoney's. Maybe you know it. It's, uh, it's good stuff. And so, and so there I was. It was about 9.30. It was about, you know, 20, 30 minutes before we were supposed to close. And if you've waited tables, you know you never want to get a table right at the end because then you've got to wait for them. It's just a nightmare. And so someone came up to me and said, hey, Jerry, you got a, you got a table. I thought, oh, you got to be kidding me. So I walk around, and I walk around the booth, and there in front of me was at that time the University of Kentucky, now uh, uh, Louisville head coach, Rick Patino. Rick Patino was at Shoney's in Cleveland, Tennessee at 9.30 at night for some reason. And, and so there I was, and I was, you know, handing him his drink, getting him his, his hot fudge cake. I, I don't remember, but I was, I, there I was, and I thought, it's Rick Patino. I can't believe it. And the whole time I kept thinking, is this really happening? Is, is Rick Patino really here? And I, I went home, and I was staying. I, I, I was a housemate with, with two or three other guys, um, two of them who were diehard Kentucky fans, and they said, it wasn't Rick Patino, And I said, no, it really was. But of course, I questioned it. I kept thinking, was it really him? Did this really happen? And, and as I was, I was thinking about that, because I can't help but think that during Jesus's life, as the disciples and others were around him, that they weren't continually asking themselves, what did he just do? Well, did he really just say that? Is this really happening? That they weren't kind of continually scratching their heads saying, I, I can't believe Jesus just said that. I, I can't believe he just did that. And, and I started thinking about this particular chapter, not just the passage we're on today, but, but the whole uh, chapter of 19 and uh, the Gospel of Luke. And it begins, as you may know, with the story of Zacchaeus. And what do you know about Zacchaeus? He was a... A wee little man, good. You guys don't do Bible sword drills as we covered last week, but you do know Zacchaeus. And he was a wee little man, and so he climbed up into a tree, right? And he climbed up in the tree, not in order to be seen, but so that he could see this Jesus, right? The, the Evander Holofield, Rick Patino of his time. 
And, and so there he was, and he's up in the tree, and he's, he's waiting for Jesus, and Jesus comes by, and it seems that Jesus is kind of right underneath him, and all of a sudden he stops, and he looks up, and he says, hey, you, Zacchaeus, I am going to your house today. And Zacchaeus had to be thinking, me? But of course, there's probably nobody else up in the tree, so it had to be him. And so he said, he had to be thinking, I can't believe this. I can't believe this is happening. Could this really be? And so sure enough, he was in the house. And don't you know, the whole time he's in the house, he's just saying, I can't believe this. Does this really just happen? Is Jesus eating with me in my house? And surely the others were also asking this question because we're told that all the other ones who were there were grumbling and were upset saying, could it really be that Jesus is here with this tax collector? We can't believe it. And, and right after that, Jesus then goes on and, and goes into a parable. It's a parable that we don't really talk about a whole lot. It's similar to the parable of the 10 talents, but it's a little bit different. It's, it's kind of weird. It's a little, a little hard to kind of really understand what's going on. And, and so I'm not going to preach on it today, but, but someday Scott will preach on it. And so, but throughout the parable, you can go back, you can read it later on. And, and, and it talks about the fact that, you know, that basically people were kind of thinking, did Jesus just really say that? What's he What's he talking about? What is this parable? And, uh, and, and at the very end of the parable, uh, Jesus says to all those who, who didn't want me to be their king, bring them here into my presence so that I can slaughter, that I can see them slaughtered. Just like at the first service, it gets very quiet after that. And what you all are thinking is, did he really say that? Well, he did. You can look it up. It's very strange. And again, like I said, that's why this guy over here is going to be preaching on it. And so you think to yourself, did Jesus really say that? Could this really be? What does that mean? But before you can really study it much longer, all of a sudden we're already gone. And we're in that verse 28, which is where our passage starts today, where it says, after he had said this, and that's what he just said, Jesus went on up towards Jerusalem. And the rest of our passage today is also full of strange, surprising moments. I mean, Jesus kind of goes on and what does he do? He tells the two disciples to go up and to find a colt. Now, Matthew kind of defines it a little bit more. It is the colt of a donkey. So it's a baby donkey. And he says to the disciples, go on up there. You're going to find this baby donkey up there. You just go ahead and you untie that thing and take it with you. And if you were one of those two disciples, you would be thinking, wait, what? He, he, you, you just want us to go and just grab this random baby donkey and just take him with us? Uh, so then Jesus says, if someone asks you why you're taking it, and they had to be relieved, right? They had to say, oh, thankfully, we got something to tell them. Well, you tell them the Lord needs it. What? Just tell them the Lord needs it and that's going to that's gonna work? Has that ever worked for you? No, no, not usually, right? And so, uh, okay, well, the disciples, I mean, good for them. They, they went ahead and they went in, in there. And they, you know, if it were me, and I have a feeling they did this because I feel like the disciples are oftentimes like me. They, they try to do it somewhat discreetly, right? You have one guy who's kind of the lookout, make sure no one sees. And you got the other guy who's kind of coming back here and trying to untie it, like act like he's not, hey, how you doing? You know, and so he, he, he's got the baby donkey and, and so they, they, they feel good. And they're like, come on, Peter, let's go, let's rock, you know. And so they're starting to walk out and all of a sudden the owners stop them, right? Wouldn't you stop them if someone was stealing your baby donkey? And, and so they said, you know, uh, what are you guys doing? And so one of them says, um, the Lord needs it. And the guy says, oh yeah, all right, well you go ahead and take that thing. And they had to be thinking, 
wait, what? Did that just happen? And so there they are, and they got the, they got the baby colt. And, and, and so then, then all of a sudden they're starting to, uh, Jesus is on top of it, and there's this big parade, right? And this is a parade that the people of Jerusalem would have been very used to, a parade for a conquering king, right? And they come down and whenever a conquering king starts going towards Jerusalem, everyone goes around him and they worship him and they celebrate him and they're, they're throwing down their coats and, and in other versions, they're throwing down palms, of course, and everyone's very excited. And so just imagine if you're one of the, the disciples and you're a little bit closer to Jerusalem and so you can hear the uproar, you know he's coming and everyone's so excited. And so they're, they're jumping around and they're praising him and all of a sudden there's Jesus and he, and he walks by and they think, wait, is he riding a baby donkey? Is this really happening? Because Jesus shouldn't have been riding a, a, a baby donkey. When kings go through there, they're riding stallions. And so they're thinking, did that just happen? But sure enough, there it is. And so they go right by him. And then finally, at long last, something happens that does not surprise us. Finally, something happens that we have been expecting, which is that the Pharisees began to complain to Jesus. Does that surprise anybody here? Well, not at all, because this is what Pharisees do. They are always the thorn in Jesus' side. And so, so with, to no surprise, they say, you know, Jesus, you should really get these disciples to quiet down. And so before we can kind of rest in that kind of normal expected thing, all of a sudden Jesus kind of surprises us again by saying, well, if they were quiet, the stones here would begin to sing praises. Right? And that's kind of a weird image, isn't it? I mean, what, all of a sudden, Jesus, the stones are going to grow little mouths and they're going to start belting out a tune. Really, Jesus? And so again, throughout this whole passage, throughout the whole chapter, Strange event after strange event. Tons of times of saying, wait, did that just happen? Surprise after surprise after surprise. And yet, it seems to me as I was thinking about it this week, that perhaps the most surprising thing that happens in all of this chapter is something that we rarely ever really that the thing that should make us say, wait, did that really happen? Is something we rarely ever talk about at all. Which is the fact that the Pharisees were actually right. That the Pharisees are actually the smartest people in this whole story outside of Jesus that the Pharisees were the most astute people in this whole passage. And that should make us say, wait, what? You see, uh, the Pharisees in Luke, unlike Matthew and Mark, uh, Luke doesn't have a huge issue with Pharisees. He doesn't speak glowingly of them, but, but there are times when the Pharisees are, are pretty good. In fact, earlier in the 13th chapter of Luke, uh, um, um, the Pharisees, Luke tells us, they, they look out for Jesus. They, they warn him about Herod, which should in some ways help us to understand how to translate why it is that they want them to stop worshiping here. What did the Pharisees know? 
That if you're around Jerusalem, if you're in the Roman Empire, and all of a sudden there are a group of people who are worshiping anything or anyone other than the emperor, then guess what is going to happen to that person and to all of the followers and to perhaps the whole city? We got one, uh, we got, we got one. What, what's going to happen? Yeah, he's going to be killed, right? I, I mean, nobody else was talking about this, but, but this is what the Pharisees knew. They knew that if everyone kept worshiping Jesus, that danger was lying ahead. And one of the things, it seems to me, that the Pharisees knew that the disciples did not yet know, but that they would discover in just a few short days is this, that worshiping Jesus is a dangerous business. One of the things, let me say that one more time, that I have a feeling that the Pharisees knew, but the disciples did not yet know then, and that I seriously wonder whether how many of us disciples know this now, that worshiping Jesus is dangerous business. My guess is that most of us, if we ever go home after lunch, or we're talking after worship service, and we say to one another, you know what? Today's worship service was great, wasn't it? That most of us, when we're talking about that, will say things like, worship really moved me. Worship really touched me today. Worship made me think. I'm curious. I won't ask you to raise your hands because I have a pretty good idea in my head. How many of us go home and would say something like, you know what? Worship was great today. Really? Yeah. Why? Because it was so dangerous. How many of us have ever said anything like that at all? I started thinking about this when I read a particular book by Mark Laberton. And Mark Laberton says this. He says, when, one, when worship is our response to the one who alone is worthy of it, Jesus Christ, then our lives are on their way to being turned inside out. Every dimension Every dimension of self-centered living becomes endangered as we come to share God's self-giving heart. Why is worship dangerous? Worship is dangerous because it forces us, if we are truly worshiping, to reprioritize all of our lives under who? Jesus under God. It forces us to do that so that the Roman Empire or our own comfort or security or wealth or peace, that all of those things, our own desires, our own selfishness, our own hopes, that all of those things are put up on the altar to be sacrificed if we are genuinely worshiping God. And what we have done a remarkable job of is privatizing worship so much that it's all about whether it moves us or touches us. And that's great if it does, but it is not enough. It is not true worship unless we begin to feel dangered in some way. Worshiping Jesus is dangerous business. 
people, because I'm a pastor, I'm sure Scott gets this as well at times, like to kind of come up to us and to say, you know, we're just, we're disappointed. Uh, you know, it's Sunday morning where we, we came in here to worship. And as we're here, we're past the golf course. And the golf course was full of golfers. And, and then we went through Starbucks and it was pretty clear that the people who were in Starbucks were, were not going to worship anytime soon. And I have a kid or, or, or someone else I know, and I know that right now they're sleeping in bed. And one of the things, I haven't yet said this, but one of the things I want to say is, I know. Aren't they really smart? I, I mean, they're as smart as the Pharisees. Because here's the thing. Starbucks... The bed and the golf course, unless it's me playing with you, none of those things are very dangerous. None of those things will ask you to give up everything else for it. None of those things will force you to reprioritize your life and to be willing to die to something. I am, as I said earlier today, I am continually surprised that so many of you keep coming back. Because if you understood what real worship is, then you know that each time you come in here, you are putting yourself in danger. But it isn't just dangerous for us. The reality is if we are truly worshiping and engaging in the dangerous act of worship, as Mark Laberton's book is titled, then you also realize that it's also the world around us that is in danger. In fact, Laberton goes on to say, worship sets us free from ourselves to be free for God and for God's purposes in the world. It sets us free to not have to be worried about the demands of the world, to not have to worry about what our own desires are, to be free to give as much as we can to others. And that is always dangerous work. Why is it that Jesus was so scary to the Romans and to the Pharisees? because he didn't care about what they thought was important. Think about the disciples come up Thursday or Friday of this week. The disciples were not dangerous to the Romans at that time. Not at all. But after Easter, and after they began to see who Jesus really was and began to worship him as God in their life, all of a sudden, they became a danger. All of a sudden, they started being jailed and killed. Why? Because they didn't care about what the Romans wanted. They stopped caring about what they wanted and they started worshiping God and God alone. And that was remarkably dangerous. I've come to think that after worship, if one of you would come up to Scott or to me or to John Grabiel or to Rob and were to say, great worship, that our response should probably be We'll see. We'll see. It'll be great worship if what we're a part of today forced you to go out and to put yourself in danger. It'll be great worship if what we did today helped you to go out and say, I'm going to die to this part of me in order to worship God and God alone. Otherwise, it's just worship. It's not really worshiping God. 
Last week I mentioned to you my friend Joel. Joel lives in Denver and I, I love Joel to death. He's a, he's a great guy and I talk to him about once every week or so. But each time I do, before I call him, as the phone is ringing, I'm a little bit nervous. I'm a little bit anxious. And it's not because he's a bad guy. It's not because he doesn't listen to me. It's, it's none of that. It's because he is my most dangerous friend. Joel was in much a situation like I was uh, a few years back. We were both living in the state of Illinois. We were both Presbyterian pastors. We had both pastored uh, uh, small churches for six years. And so I got to know Joel really well. We would talk from time to time. I'd go and I'd visit him and we'd visit each other. And one of the things that I continually noticed is that each week Joel was going to worship, of course, right? Because, because churches for some reason want pastors to go to worship. And so, so they were there and every week he was there and he was engaging in this dangerous worship. And I could tell that something was changing, that, that he continued to prioritize God more and more and more. Until the point when finally he said to me, Jerry, we're leaving. I'm leaving, and he didn't say this, but I knew a job that was paying him pretty well in a place that he, that he seemed to like okay with people who were kind to him. They weren't running him out of town with a, a salary that was decent, with security of, of medical insurance and a pension that was outstanding. And he said, Jerry, we're moving to Denver. What are you going to do in Denver? We're moving into a community and we're just going to start loving people like Christ loves them. Yeah, Joel, well, what are you going to do for a living? Because Joel had a wife and three little kids. Oh, we'll figure it out. And sure enough, he went. This is no romantic glory story. This is no story about, well, now, you know what? He's got a church of three or 4,000 and everything's incredible. No. Joel's been dumpster diving and driving around and finding people who have put stuff up, uh, you know, up on their driveway and, and taking it, uh, you know, the Lord uh, needs it, right? And, 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 and taking it and refinishing it and then selling it in flea markets. And when I talk to Joel, and he won't listen to this, I don't think he's too busy, uh, so I can say it. He, 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 he seems tired oftentimes. You can tell that there's a bit of stress in his voice, that, that this is, everything isn't going swimmingly and perfectly, but you also hear the voice of someone who says, I am living with a dangerous God right now, and I am passionately and radically following Jesus wherever he calls me to go. And though it is hard and difficult, I am absolutely loving it. And the reality is that Joel is not just dangerous to himself and to his wife and to his children. He is dangerous for all of those who live in his neighborhood because Joel is not going to stop bugging them. He is not going to stop loving them and opening up his house to them and having parties for them and caring about them and asking him what he can do to help them or pray for them until they know beyond the shadow of a doubt that God loves them. And what happens when you start knowing that God loves you is that you have to start finally worshiping. And why is he a danger to them? Because as soon as they start really worshiping God, then they have to start reprioritizing their lives, not to what is important to them, not to what the world says is important, but what is important to God and God alone, which means it will begin to cost them. That is dangerous living when you worship God and God alone. 
And it's dangerous to me because every time I call him, even if we don't talk about what he's doing, I know that the whole time I am asking myself this question, Jerry, what God are you worshiping? Are you worshiping one until it simply tickles your ears or warms your heart? Or are you worshiping a God who calls you to dangerous living? I'm not worried about God calling me to dumpster diving. My, my family would starve well before that happened. There's no way that we would be any good at it. But I was watching this video. I realized that maybe God's calling me to do that. An hour a week? I promise you that if I were to try to fit that into my family right now, it would force us to reprioritize what was important to us. So the question for us this week is a very simple one in this holy week. Who are we going to follow? Are we going to follow the Pharisees and say, you know what? This worship, we, we're smart enough to know this is pretty dangerous stuff. Are we going to follow the disciples who say, yep, we're with you, man, as long as things are good. As long as the music's okay and the preaching's all right, we're going to follow you until things get a little bit more difficult. Or are we willing to follow the Jesus who in this very week, the most dangerous week of his life, marches right into Jerusalem? Are we willing to worship in that dangerous way? Are we willing to worship Jesus? no matter how dangerous it is. Are we? We'll see. We will see. Amen.